you know, I've been part of what we broadly call alt media or the truth movement. And we're trying to fight this new world order and uh, the powers that be, so to speak. We know that the increasingly we see that they're Luciferian in their character. It's becoming more and more apparent. Just they're introducing Luciferian agenda to the schools, the transgenderism, the homosexual marriage, satanic worship, child sacrifice, the whole things that were brought up by Pizzagate, etc. As people in the alt media start to see that it's Luciferian, they say, well, if there's a Lucifer, there must be a God. And it would be nice, it would be nice, if not essential, to direct them towards the true God, uh, which is Jesus Christ in the Trinity, which they can best find in the authentic church, which still worships as it did. Uh, two millennia ago, going back to the days of Christ. So I see this as personal, and it, as I've said, uh, contributes to my understanding of geopolitics as being the human representation of the spiritual warfare, which the Bible speaks of. This is Global Storyline with your host, Dean W. Arnold, where we examine events current and past and place them in the Global Storyline. So uh, welcome to Global Storyline, and uh, it's a real privilege today to uh, have as my guest James Perloff, uh, who uh, has uh, been on uh, an, an interesting uh, spiritual journey, and that's what we're going to talk about today, and uh, I'll let him um, tell us all about that and uh, what, what it is and introduce the whole subject matter. Um, uh, uh, James has been on here uh, a couple of different times before. We've talked about uh, the true Israel uh, we've talked about uh, uh, how Putin, uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, president of Russia, has taken an interesting uh, role, uh, leadership role in geo geopolitics. And uh, today we're going to be talking about Orthodox Christianity. So uh, first thing I'll uh, just mention about James in terms of inter introducing him, uh, I think he's one of the clearest writers that we have uh, in the country right now, in the world, uh, on, on some of these matters. And uh, I'm a big fan. I've, al I've always been a big fan. Um, uh, some of his books have, have sold over a hundred thousand. I'm going to let you introduce yourself a, a little more uh, specifically, but just I'll just tee it up there by saying uh, one of uh, one of our better uh, writers and speakers in the country on what really matters. Um, well, I've uh, been uh, a journalist since 1985 when I started writing for the New American Magazine, so that's uh, what 32 years now. And uh, wrote for them until 2012, uh, off and on. Can we say John Birch Society, just so people know what we're talking yeah, about? Uh, that's a very conservative magazine that uh, is, is their flagship journal. It's still uh, being published in hard copy today, as well as having an online, uh, you know, the newamerican.com. I used to read that back in the day. I was a big fan. Right. Oh, yeah. And... Um, I wrote uh, a book for them uh, called The Shadows of Power. That's one of the, that's 100,000 seller. And that's about the Council on Foreign Relations, which is an uh, organization which the shadow oligarchy of America uses to run our foreign policy. Uh, in the mid 90s, I got very interested as a, I, I, I was an agnostic, I grew up an agnostic, and I came to Christ in the early 80s. And then in the mid 90s, I got very interested in the whole creation evolution debate. I wound up writing two books against about that. The case against Darwin and uh, the more significant one was Tornado in a Junkyard. They did a lot of uh, PowerPoint talks and lectures, still do in uh, churches and other venues on that. Um, but after 9-11, and after, particularly after I learned the, uh, the backstory of 9-11, I uh, returned more to focusing on geopolitics. And my latest book is called Truth is a Lonely Warrior. 
which is a um, a primer on what we call the New World Order, the oligarchical forces that run the world through multinational corporations, groups like the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderbergers, the central banks, who are moving us in the direction of what we call one world. Uh, you know, uh, I, I bought one, and it's uh, it's more of your very, very clear, credible writing, very well-sourced, uh, great stuff. Yeah. Uh, just to clarify from a Christian perspective, um, you know, many uh, people of uh, various branches of Christianity believe that there's going to be a time of um, of suffering under a, a figure the Bible calls the, the beast or antichrist. There's different opinions about when that will occur or did occur. But uh, I certainly believe that the whole movement towards world government, which the EU is a microcosm of, which NAFTA is a microcosm of, is heading us in that direction. And from a religious perspective, the whole ecumenical movement created a one-world religion, which has been pushed for over the past century, has been part of that too. So I focus on uh, geopolitics a lot. But I often look at things from a spiritual perspective because I think that the world of politics is actually um, a, uh, a playing field where the spiritual warfare the Bible talks about is taking place in, in, um, in, in, a, in a human environment. And my website is jamesperloff.com. I'm sure you put a link in somewhere, but it's P-E-R-L-O-F-F, and I'm also on Twitter. Yeah, um, and I'm glad you uh, mentioned uh, sort of the mixing of the politics and the spiritual. And as you begin to talk about your journey into Orthodox Christianity, uh, you know, just uh, uh, I, I don't want to get ahead of the the get the cart ahead of the horse here, but um, uh, in some of your past writings and in your work and your speaking, have you mixed those two subjects too much, or is is, is talking about this subject today a bit more of a moving into an, a, a different area for you? Uh, this is not really moving into it's uh, more advanced, I guess. But uh, most uh, Christians, um, be they Catholic, Protestant, or Orthodox, have some sense of this. I think of the, the direction our, our world is headed in. And when I've talked about world government as a potential threat, and I talk about many other things as well, population control, um, quite a few other things, uh, central banking. Um, people do recognize when I when I refer to Revelation and the, and the beast, who, the one who will rule over every tribe and nation, needing a world government to govern the world, you need a world government. That makes sense, right? So I've often mentioned that in my um, PowerPoint talks, and people get it um, if they're coming from a spiritual uh, background. If they're completely in what we call the matrix, you know, the um, uh, uh, their, their views are entirely derived from CNN and mainstream media. They they won't get that. But if they have a a Christian background, um, they usually do understand that connection between the political and the spiritual. Okay, great. So why don't you go ahead and uh, and first tell us a little bit of some of the uh, the caveats you want to give us uh, before you talk about uh, uh, all spiritual truth uh, in terms of uh, you know what what platform you're speaking from. Okay. Well, we're, we're talking tonight about my most recent blog post, which is um, uh, about my joining the Eastern Orthodox faith. And uh, I was just baptized and chrismated on November the 18th of this year, 2017, into the Orthodox Church. And the caveats are, um, first of all, I'm not a spokesman for the Orthodox Church. So if you know how they have the radio station, they'll say, the opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of this station. So I'm not a spokesperson for the Orthodox Church. These are my own remarks, as are, I'm sure you would give this a similar caveat. Um, 
the other thing I want to mention is that nothing I say tonight, even though it's going to necessitate my saying some negative experiences I had in other churches, um, is not intended as an attack on anybody else's faith, uh, their their beliefs. Um, you know, I attended non-Orthodox churches for more than 30 years. And as I, I pointed out at the start of my blog post, I had very meaningful encounters with God in those churches, as others do. They become born again. You know, I just tweeted something about a street preacher yesterday, which I think you, I know you, I don't know if you retweeted it, but you commented on it. It's a very bold, uh, young uh, Afro-American man preaching the gospel on the street and taking on all comers, including the police, um, everybody who hassled him. Um, so this is not intended, you know, he criticizes somebody else's beliefs, never wins them over. That, so that's not what this is about. It's about my own journey. Um, and there are many, many good Christians out there. And I know, I'm sure you would agree with me, Dean, that um, even though there's not been a very long Orthodox presence in the West, without good Protestants and Catholics here, we would have gone down the tubes a lot long, a long time ago. And, and the last caveat is this. I've attended... Um, I'd say for extended periods, probably six different churches over those 30 years. And uh, it's possible that somebody from one of those congregations will be watching this, this podcast at some point. I just won't, don't want people to assume if I say something negative that I experienced in, in um, a Protestant church, I don't want people to think I'm talking always talking about our church and our congregation because chances are I won't be. So I just want people to understand that I'm, I'm speaking more or less in general terms and I'm not not necessarily speaking to one particular church that I used to to, uh, to go to. So those are uh, my main caveats that I wanted to begin with. Yeah, and, and some of the things I've written, one of the clarifications I like to make, which I'm sure you probably want to uh, identify with, is that uh, these aren't matters of heaven and hell. We're not talking about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell and this sort of thing. We're talking about... Well, I got that all figured out. I, I, already... <laughs> <laughs> I know where you're going, but I won't say. Um, the... Uh, uh, but no, what we're talking about here is we're talking about Christ's uh, body on earth. We're talking about the the physical institution of the Church of Jesus Christ. How do you put that together? Who's in charge? Who makes the rules? Uh, I, I've I've called it before the chaos of church. Um, but at some point, if you're a thinking individual, you you look around and you say, well, who's in charge and who says so and who gets to be in charge and why? And when you start asking all those questions, um, you know, in my opinion, and of course, in your experience, uh, you end up becoming, uh, in my opinion, an Eastern Orthodox Christian, uh, because you go back to the apostles and you go back to the historic church. Um, so what we're talking about is how can we best have the body of Christ thrive and become the true bride of Christ uh, that we long for to see uh, happen on this earth. Uh, so this is, we're talking about fullness. We're talking about mm -hmm true fruit. We're talking about the true blessings of God's kingdom and God's people on earth, but we're not necessarily talking about who's going to heaven and going to hell. There's plenty of wonderful Baptists that are going to heaven, and there's uh, there's plenty of Orthodox that are probably going to hell. So, you know, we, we, you know, we don't know that. We're, that's not what we're talking about. Yeah, that's up to God and definitely, definitely not up to us. Um, I think we should define Orthodoxy a little bit, because I know sure. that a lot of my listeners or my followers who tune into this broadcast will, well, what's the Orthodox Church? And so, um, speaking historically and overgeneralizing to some extent, uh, for the first thousand years after the resurrection, there was essentially one church, and nobody said, what's your denomination? And uh, when there were uh, schisms, 
beginning to erupt or there was a heresy beginning to develop, they would uh, convene an ecumenical council, and there were seven ecumenical councils over those over those centuries, and the church was one, um, essentially. And then in 1054, the church split, and this was essentially over two matters, and one of them was that the pope, the, the patriarch of Rome, uh, wanted to have a full authority over the church. And we should clarify that at the uh, uh, ecumenical councils, the the pope had, had the highest seat of honor. I think that's correct to say. But he was one of many patriarchs. The patriarch of Constantinople was there, patriarch of Alexandria and Antioch and Jerusalem, and bishops from throughout Christendom would attend these. And decisions would be achieved through mutual consultation, and it was, a, it, was a, um, it was a group decision. It was not one man speaking for the entire church. So this uh, challenge of authority led to the split along with what we call the filial controversy, which I don't want to really elaborate on tonight, but it involved changing the original Nicene Creed um, to, to a small but significant extent. Um, but the church split at that point, and then uh, from that point on, in the West and in Europe, People's only exposure to Christianity was to the Vatican, through the Vatican. People forgot about the Eastern Church. And then after almost 500 years came the Protestant split. And, you know, Martin Luther, I'm, I'm sure you and I would agree, had some pretty good reasons for posting those 95 theses. But when the church split, and, you know, Satan's got a divide and conquer strategy. When the church split, it led to more splits. And all of a sudden you had Henry VIII forming his own church in England, the England Church. Anglican Church, because the Pope wouldn't give him a divorce. And all of a sudden, everybody and his mother, over the centuries, wanted to form his own church in the West. And so now we've got hundreds of denominations, and people going, well, what's the true Christianity? But it wasn't that way for the first millennium. There was this one church. And um, we've forgotten about the Eastern Church in the, in, in, uh, in the West, uh, uh, largely. And, and I recently just discovered, and I was so excited to discover that it continues to worship as it did. But let me throw it back to you, because I'm sure I've left some holes and maybe made some 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 um, slip-ups in my Oh, no, that's great. That's a, good, that's a great place to start. Um, I think when, when I'm talking to people about orthodoxy uh, who might not have too much awareness, one of the things I mention is that although we're a little bit uh, not too well-known uh, here in the United States, it's the second largest expression of Christianity in the world. Catholicism has about a billion people, and Eastern Orthodoxy has about 400 million. Um, and, you know, uh, the countries that we're mostly uh, used to them uh, being associated with are Russia, Greece. You know, some of, a lot of people, I, I, the first thing I say is, have you seen the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Well, there you go, uh, because that's where a lot of people are, you know. Um, but Russia, Greece, Eastern Europe uh, are uh, countries like uh, the Republic of Georgia, uh, there's smaller expressions of Christianity in the nations of Europe and in the United States and Australia. Um, but this is what we're talking about, the heart of Eastern Orthodoxy. It's a, it's a large group of people. And uh, you, you did well to, to mention the, the split off of East and West in 1054. Most people aren't aware of that uh, schism, uh, and they're not even hardly aware of the Eastern Church. I wasn't either. You know, it's not, you know, uh, they made going my way about uh, Bing Crosby as a Catholic uh, 
um, priest, and they made uh, Hollywood movies about Protestant preachers. Not a lot over the years, but uh, rarely, uh, maybe with the exception of my big fat Greek wedding, was uh, the Eastern Church portrayed, even portrayed or mentioned. And for the most part, um, people just didn't know it was around at all. And um, But now, uh, thanks to the Internet and social media, people can find out information instantly where before, you know, you had to cross an ocean, no email, uh, no, no phone lines even at one point to, to learn about the existence of this long-forgotten but very significant church, as you said, uh, 400 million members. And, and I'll mention one more thing to you. And a lot of people sort of, they sort of lump, if they do know a little bit about Eastern Orthodoxy, they'll lump it together with Catholicism uh, versus Protestantism because Catholicism and, and Orthodoxy are both liturgical, you know, the, the priests wear, you know, vestments and there's incense and there's a whole, all that sort of thing. Um, uh, but the truth is, for the Orthodox, uh, they don't view it that way. They they lump Catholics and Protestants together as the West. Mm-hmm. If you talk to leaders in Orthodoxy, it's like, oh, the West. Yeah, we, you know, and 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 uh, they do not consider themselves part of the West, and they certainly do not consider themselves part of Catholicism. So anybody who's under the impression that Eastern Orthodoxy is just course, sort of like Catholicism but farther east, no, there's been a there's been a uh, a decisive split since 10,054, 1,054. Yeah, a lot of things change over a thousand years. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I think we've done a pretty good job of explaining orthodoxy uh, uh, as uh, the beginning stages. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, where you were in Protestantism and what were the things that caused you to start to look elsewhere, and just tell us your journey. Sure. Um, I started out uh, growing up in an agnostic home. We had no God in our home. And uh, I was involved in a New Age cult for um, uh, 10 years, uh, until 1982. Um, felt God calling me out of that. And um, actually, I, you know, I read a New Age gospel called the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus the Christ. It started, but even though it was a, a uh, not a true gospel, it started to pull me towards Christ. And um, I, again, I had very meaningful encounters in those churches, um, but uh, I, I never was Catholic, um, and um, I'm aware of uh, the, the corruptions that are within the Vatican today. And you know, I've been on uh, Trad Cat Night Radio, and I've been on. I know Tim Kelly's been a guest on your show, or maybe you were a guest on his show. I can't remember, but he's Catholic. Both, I think. And yeah. um, <laughs> there are many faithful Catholics out there, but most of the traditional Catholics do acknowledge that since Vatican II, their church has been um, facing serious issues and serious decline, and that there are serious corruptions within the Vatican itself. Which, as I explained in my blog post, I regard more as a result of infiltration than in any kind of inherent uh, evil within the Vatican. But that's not a topic I want to uh, start to explore. I want to keep our focus on orthodoxy. But but never been Catholic. I, I wouldn't really say Protestant churches so much as evangelical types of churches. Because when you go to the non-Catholic side of the church in America, Western church, there was a basic split that occurred between what we call the modernist and the fundamentalist. And this, this split occurred about a century ago, or really began a little over a century ago. The modernists uh, were funded by the Rockefellers, and they were trying to degrade Christianity. They were saying that there was no resurrection, there were no miracles, 
we don't really don't know who wrote the Bible. There's no second coming. Jesus was just a wise man. And this is taught in their seminaries, funded by the Rockefellers. And I have a blog post on this. It's called The War on Christianity, Part 1. Believe it or not, I was hired by someone to explore this issue of why Christianity was declining in America this, many years ago. And this post uh, um, is actually an outgrowth of that initial study that I did. It's a great article. I've, I, I love it. It's one of your... It's one of your classic pieces uh and in fact i don't want to get ahead of you but you know there's two wings of protestantism which is the the modernists that you're talking about and the fundamentalists and you've written great articles on both sides of that equation where uh basically new world order godless the leaders of this world have infiltrated and uh and, and turned it south so go ahead yeah, they wouldn't neglect the church. Uh, they know that the church is really their greatest opponent. Now, I attended non-modernist churches, you know, the ones that are Bible-believing churches. Um, but as I, the longer I stayed in the evangelical churches, the more I found that a lot of uh, untruth had crept in. Um, I found that uh, they had been largely, and I'm not talking about all of them, um, uh, but largely had been hijacked by the Rothschild side of the New World Order, especially through the publication of what they call the Schofield Reference Bible, which um, the, the purpose, the entire purpose of that Bible was to get the, uh, since the Pope had rejected uh, Zionists taking over Israel, they turned to the Protestants, and they, the Oxford University Press printed millions of copies of that Bible. It really transformed people's thinking, and it is it birthed the modern Christian Zionist movement, which I, I found... Uh, infiltrated into churches which I was attending, and so it was support for Israel. And um, now I, I wrote for the New American, one of the most patriotic magazines in this country, but I found these churches coupled with the support for Israel was support for these wars in the Middle East, which are really being fought on behalf of what we call the Greater Israel Project. And you need to you need to Google that. Go, go to Global Research, and you can read about the Yinan Plan, the global, you know, the, the whole. Uh, in world government is going to be a capital, and that capital is going to be in Jerusalem. Even Paul warned us in 2 Thessalonians that the man of lawlessness would would, um, would uh, appear in God's temple pretending to be God. And so that's what we're seeing develop right now in the Middle East. There's a spiritual dynamic to everything happening there. But I found this in the churches. One church I went to was so Zionized that um, the— uh, we were instructed to celebrate the, the, the Feast of Purim one day, and they passed out noisemakers, and we were to emulate being Jews in a synagogue to show our solidarity with, with the Jews. And there were no Jews from the synagogue even there to see the solidarity. So the people in the congregation were kind of acting out, pretending to be Jews in a synagogue. And I, I just stood there like this, kind of, and I looked across at another Christian who felt the same way. This is not the way we worship. All you have to do is read the book of Hebrews. We know we're done with Jewish ceremony. And I found— I was going to ask I, you the I, question, uh, why, how come you were not, did not fall prey to the Zion, Zion, Zionist tendencies? What, what Do you know? Just reading well, the book I'd of Hebrews? Or? Wised, I'd already wised up to Zionism. I'd already found out the, Israel's role, for example, in 9-11, which, you know, uh, only Israel... You go to the, People need to go to the article on... It's called Wikispooks, Israel did... 9-11, Israel did it. And the, the, from the dancing Israelis to who ran security at Logan Airport to um, Benjamin Netanyahu's... Uh, uh, weekly conversation with Larry Silverstein, the owner of the World Trade Center, you will find amazing re relationship between the Mossad, Israel, and 9-11. I was wised up to this, and was wised up also to the persecution of Christians in Palestine by Israel. I knew what was going on, 
And so I was um, not having any of it. And but when I when I uh, moved on, I looked at other churches and I found that the the the, um, the their doctrinal statements had inherited ideas from the Schofield Reference Bible about Jesus having a coming back to earth. We're going to re- return to Jewish sacrifices and the temple will be rebuilt and Jesus will rule from this temple for a millennium. And even though Jesus said the temple will be torn down, not built up, even though Jesus said that. Um, rejected being an earthly king. They tried to make him an earthly king. He said, my kingdom is not of this world, you know? And so I was really hungry for a church I could call home that would not conflict with my own understanding of the Bible and my own understanding of history and how it related to the Bible. And that's what started me in the direction of orthodoxy. Now, did you, so did, did you find out that Eastern Orthodox uh, don't have those same pro-Zionist views or how did you inch, inch toward uh, orthodoxy from that particular issue? The first uh, um, mention of orthodoxy that caught my attention came from Brother Nathaniel. Uh, I know you're familiar with him. He's Russian Orthodox like you. And he's a, uh, a Jewish gentleman who converted to Orthodoxy, and he had um, a uh, YouTube clip talking about his journey into the Orthodox Church. Now, I didn't, I paid attention to it, but it didn't really impact me. Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting, but it didn't really impact What really impacted me was going on this show, uh, Global Storyline, because, you know, I, I like to know something about the host before I go on a show, and I thought, well, what does Dean Arnold believe? So I, uh, fortunately, I, I picked an interview he did with Jay Dyer. And Jay Dyer is well-known in alternative media. He, uh, wrote a book called Esoteric Hollywood, which I still haven't read, but I've read some of his comments on Hollywood. And people know he has tremendous intelligence and insight. And as I listened to that um, interview between you and and Jay, who are both converts coming out of both um, uh, Catholic and Protestant backgrounds, if I'm uh, remembering this correctly. Correct. And you, you can tell us some about that. Um, one of the things, I think the thing that impacted me, number one, as I've, I've been evolving more and more into a traditionalist over time, as I've seen that Satan has a rebellious na- nature, and he's doing it with tr- gay marriage and, and transgenderism, etc. Um, as, I, as I discovered that the Orthodox Church still worships the way the early Christians did, I said, you know, that's very, very appealing, because I want to I worship the way the original Christians worship, not in this spinoff of a, you know, I would tend to churches that were spinoffs of spinoffs of earlier spinoffs. I said, I don't want to spin up. I don't want to go to a church where the elder board decides we're going to start being seeker-sensitive. We're going to have new types of music, and we're going to change the form of worship. I want that authentic, original Christianity. There, I'm going to go into several reasons why the Orthodox Church appeals to me and why I began attending one. But that was the first thing that struck me is the authenticity, and they were going back to the original way that the uh, church worshiped because the church is not the Orthodox Church has not been corrupted as the Vatican has. I won't say that there aren't individuals who have been corrupted, but the church continues to worship as it did, has not been corrupted, it has not been modernized, and it has not been Zionized. And those are kind of the three things keeping away from Catholicism, modernist, Protestant, mainstream, mainline denominations, and the, the fundamentalists. And so I suddenly said, you know what, there's a church here that has just what I'm looking for. And so I want to stress that the process that brought me to orthodoxy was not um, casual. It was a result of over 30 years in evangelical churches and over 30 years as a journalist looking for the truth. And I want to mention one other thing before I throw this back to you, and I think people should know this if they don't. Hank Hennegraaff recently converted 
um, if I can use that word, to the Orthodox faith. He's become also a member of the Orthodox faith. And this caused radio stations to drop the Bible answer and show. But for those who don't know it, Hank Hanegraaff was for decades celebrated in the evangelical circles as the Bible answer man, perhaps considered the greatest authority on the Bible. And I think people who know Hank would agree. He's not a man who makes a decision based on a casual whim. If, if he, if he uh, has gone into the Orthodox Church, it's as a result of tremendous contemplation, prayer, and study of God's Word, and study of history, and study of orthodoxy for him to make that decision. I didn't even know he was converting, changing, to embracing orthodoxy at the same time I was. I, I discovered it you know, a few months ago after I'd begun attending an Orthodox church, but uh, I do want to uh, make sure I give a plug for it because I think that uh, people will learn uh, probably more from him than me about Orthodoxy if they listen to some of his interviews that he's given on the Orthodox church. Excellent. Well, uh, let me uh, let me chime in on a few things uh, uh, based on what you said. First of all, just getting back to the Jay Dyer interview, uh, briefly, Jay's experience uh, was as a young young Calvinist, Baptist, uh, age 20, he's a bright guy, and he figured out pretty quick that sola scriptura did not work. And uh, like many things you've already said today, I'm not going to get into the details of that, but if you just ask the question, uh, who, decide which, who decided which books are in the Bible? Uh, uh, you know, you can say, well, it's only the Bible, but okay, uh, the Mormons think the Book of Mormon goes in there. And uh, other people think the... Uh, apocryphal uh, gospel of thomas is supposed to go in there and martin luther would, didn't want the book of james to be in there because it contradicted his uh mm. you know uh uh salvation by faith alone uh doctrine um and so it's you know when you ask that question well evangelicals good solo scriptura bible believing good-hearted people they'll tell you well the church decided in the fourth century which books were in the bible well if if those were the people who decided what was in the Bible, you got to figure they've also got some other kind of authority too. Uh, and and so as you begin to ask the question, so, solo scriptura begins to unwind. Anyway, so Jay, being a bright kid at age 20, he figured that out and he became Catholic. Uh, because he had to go somewhere uh, where there was a more of a tradition that was based on uh, apostolic secession that goes back to the apostles and Christ himself. He spent two, 10 years as a Catholic, and uh, this is a unique story that I don't even completely understand, both because I'm, I've never been Catholic and I'm not as philosophically bright as Jay, but he... Uh, he started reading all the church fathers and all the great philosophers and f believed that the West, the Catholic West, had really abandoned the first thousand-year foundation laid by the Eastern Church, by the Apostolic Church, which basically said that we can know God directly in his energies. Uh, we can't know him in his essence. He's beyond us in his essence. But in his energies, we can directly commune, have union, and and become one with God in that sense. The West abandoned that. Thomas Aquinas moved us into a place where the Western, Western Christianity said God in his essence is completely unknowable, so you can't not you cannot know God directly. You cannot become united to Him directly. You can do it through sort of intermediary things, um, and that 
that separation philosophically for Jay was the uh, turning point, and it ultimately caused him to become Eastern Orthodox. So he's got a unique story. Uh, so I wanted to mention that. A couple things about what you said. I don't want to. I want to get more detail on this because I'm fascinated by it. Because seems like people have very different ways they come into Orthodoxy. Uh, but in terms of your saying this is the way the early church worshipped, a couple things I wanted to note. Uh, one is uh, I've often heard that uh, if you want to know what a first century synagogue looked like in the Bible times, you're better off going to an Orthodox church than to a Jewish synagogue today. Because Jewish synagogues today are based on some 4th, 5th century stuff in Eastern Europe, uh, whereas the Orthodox Church and its liturgy is a continuation of what was going on in the Jewish synagogue, but fulfilled in Christ. The layout of the synagogue uh, is similar to the way Orthodox churches are laid out, the way the altar is set up with the items from the Ark of the Covenant, you know, the Ten Commandments being the Gospel book, the jar of manna being the Eucharist, and the the wooden cross being uh Aaron's staff, that was all. There was models of that in every Jewish synagogue. And the procession of coming to the altar uh, uh, in, in a Jewish temple or tabernacle uh, is, is repeated with the Eucharist now. Uh, the same psalms that were read at the beginning and during the service are read in an Orthodox liturgy today. So there really is... Uh, uh, a lot of continuity in the, in that sense. Now, and, and then one little anecdote that's interesting, and that is, uh, I was <clears throat> I went to with one of my Orthodox friends to go see the movie uh, uh, Mel Gibson's movie The Passion about Christ, <clears throat> and when uh, and we had the the trial scene when all of those uh, members of the Sanhedrin were up there in their robes and their headgear and all that kind of stuff. My friend said it looks like a bunch of Orthodox bishops. Uh, in other words, uh, the vestments and the worship and the style and what they were doing in the first century hasn't changed much. We still do it in the Orthodox Church, but it's all fulfilled in Christ. Right. And uh, but we also want to make uh, absolutely clear the the sharp distinctions between Christianity and, and, and Judaism. Um, uh, anyway, you have uh, uh, certainly because uh, Judaism has, uh, as you know, has, has uh, descended into Talmudism, which is um, um, uh, a very uh, blasphemous book that says that uh, Jesus' mother was a whore and that Jesus is boiling excrement in hell and that Gentiles are utterly inferior beings. Um, so I just want to make sure that uh, people uh, understand that because uh, you know more about uh, that um, that transition than I, I'd heard before. I've heard some of that before. Well, Jesus but. Jesus condemned the oral law. Um, and the traditions of men that were in the oral law, which were things ap apart from the scriptures that we know of as the Old right. Testament. He condemned that, and he condemned the leaders of Judaism at his time that were promoting those things, and ultimately because of their hardness of heart and their rebellion, and their following these oral traditions, which, which weren't truly the word of God, uh, he said, uh, your whole land is going to be destroyed. He predicted the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and 
Uh, and he said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And in, in Christ and in the Eucharist and in the liturgy and in Jesus Christ being the eternal high priest uh, in the line of Melchizedek, we have the continuation, the true continuation of all those wonderful Old Testament shadows and all that all that was given to us. Uh, uh, Jesus is the true Israelite. The church is the true Israel. And then what happened after the destruction of Jer Jerusalem? two or three centuries later was the formation of the Talmud and all these strange doctrines. It was really a continuation of that oral law that Jesus condemned. So yes, oh, yes, the, the, yeah. the, this group uh, uh, called Judaism now or uh, Jews, uh, they, they are very, very different from Christianity and from Jesus Christ. And they are, they're really not followers of the Old Testament scriptures. Correct. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that uh, we made that distinction, um, that we're not talking about we the Orthodox Church has some sort of uh, inheritance from uh, the uh, Talmudic uh, brand of Judaism, which is that which Jesus condemned the Pharisees, and which uh, later became written down as a Talmud, and which we see as um, uh, a large basis for the uh, the, the truth, the Zion, truth, Zionist movement. Today. The true so followers, make sure of, followers, make sure that we're not talking about a continuity from that. We're talking about a continuity from the Old Testament, from the Tanakh. And of course, if you look at um, an Orthodox Church, many people are immediately struck by its beauty. That is not uh, a central reason why I came into it, but it is. Um, uh, the, if you look at uh, the way God ordained that Solomon's temple was to be built, it was with gold and with um, tapestries and with cedar wood and figures of the cherubim. It was a very beautiful structure. And so um, I, I do believe, I, I, you know, when you go into a, a modern um, church today in the West, quite often uh, a non-Catholic church, you'll often see uh, just an empty room, maybe one cross. Whereas if you go into an, you know, an Orthodox church, you will see the, the beautiful icons. And um, uh, this beauty is intended to emulate, correct me if I'm wrong, which, where it's intended to emulate to man, the best of man's abilities, the beauty of the worship that occurs in heaven. Amen. And uh, also one thing that's interesting is that today on the church calendar, uh, we had the passage where Jesus uh, uh, gets very angry when he goes inside the temple and drives out some cattle and and uh, money changers. But he says, he says, my father's house was meant to be a house of prayer. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and so what Jesus has uh, has founded in his church now in the Orthodox Church is a is a place where people pray. And in our services, which are, uh, I guess for lack of better words, scripted, uh, but we, we know what we're going to do when we come to church. It's been laid out for us, that sort of thing. But from the beginning to the end, we're, we're praying. Uh, we're not, uh, uh, we're not having brainstorming sessions. We're not, there's not, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, things that break up, you know, it's, it's someone's constantly chanting, someone's constantly praying, someone, uh, there's, there's, there's choirs singing, uh, and it's it's a it's a place that Jesus said that he wanted and he desired, which is a house of prayer. That's a good point, and um, I wanted to get back to uh, a point uh, you were making earlier uh, about the uh, authority of the church in um, the earliest days, and that the fourth century church was the one that gave us the Bible. I mean, they were the ones who convened. 
in council and determine the canon of scriptures. Um, there was really no such thing as sola scriptura for the first three centuries because the people, not only were most people illiterate, but they didn't have a Bible they could walk around with. So the Bible was settled by the fourth century Christians. Of course, the fourth century is when Constantine legalized the church and the church was able to come up out of the catacombs and they were able to start building the churches. But um, what I think is uh, also important to mention is that same fourth century church gives us the liturgy we now practice, St. John Chrysostom, um, from the fourth century. That's the liturgy we use today. So, um, if in fact that fourth century church was authoritative for the Bible, would it not also be authoritative for the form of worship, which we are seeing the same uh, worship basically as occurred in the fourth century? And of course, that's not identical. You know, they used to pray for those who travel by land and sea. Well, now we pray for those who travel by land, sea, and air because we've got airplanes. So it's not that the, the liturgy is identical. And we've got electric lights now, right? But it's not identical, but it is substantially the same as the original uh, church. And if people think, well, the fourth century church messed it up from the first century, you just go back to the, the first century uh, uh, and the second century church fathers, uh, the Didache, um, you know, St. Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch, you see how they described what was going on in terms of worship. You see that they didn't mess it up. And so we're really talking about uh, original, authentic worship. This is there's, the a, there's, also a, there's also a liturgy of St. James, which has right. been handed down uh, to the church from the first century from James, the brother of our Lord, who presided mm -hmm. over the, the council in Acts 15 to figure out how to, how to handle the Jewish question uh, of uh, circumcision. Uh, and who also wrote the book of James, but uh, we have the liturgy of St. James. It's a, it's like a three or four hour long liturgy. Uh, uh, and it's sometimes performed in various monasteries and churches across the world. Uh, but it, uh, it's very, it's very similar to the, uh, liturgy of John Chrysostom. Uh, that's why Chrysostom's liturgy is w what it is because we, we basically believe that the fourth century liturgy is, based on what the church did from the very beginning, what Christ did with his apostles when they prayed. Exactly. And I've not read St. James' liturgy, but, you know, I, I, I should mention that uh, being uh, Orthodox, going to an Orthodox church for only one year now, I'm still a newbie uh, in many respects. So I, I, I learned a lot for you, and so I'd like you to take the lead in, <laughs> in describing, so, uh, you know, some of these points about the Orthodox church. No problem, church, no problem. But... You, have, you have a lot. By the way, how long have you been Orthodox, Dean? I, I don't even know. Uh, I'm going to say uh, uh, almost 20 years. Okay, I was so I'm one year. So um, I was chrismated in uh, <laughs> I was chrismated in 2001. It was it was two days after 9/11. So I, I always tell I always tell people that my chrismation chrismation shook the world. Um, um, well, I've also found oh no, I'm sorry. 9/11 9/11 was two days after my chrismation. So I, I was I was chrismated on 9/9. And then two, and then two days later, we had the, the twin towers fall. Um, you know, speaking of nine eleven, the only building destroyed on nine eleven that was uh, not part of the the uh, World Trade Center complex was an Orthodox church, which to me there's a little significance in that because it was also a another church, I believe it was Trinity Church, 
uh, may not have the full name. Uh, this is not fresh in my mind because it wasn't plenty to talk about tonight. But it was a church where uh, Freemason George Washington, I believe, went to church when he first became president on that particular day. It's rather interesting. They say that that church, none of the panes were shattered on that dark day. It was somehow untouched by the events. But the fact that, that the one building that was not part of the World Trade Center was, was destroyed was an Orthodox church. You know, I'm going to be talking about some of the spiritual dimensions of what's happened to the Orthodox Church and uh, some of the the, uh, the horrifying um, destruction that people have seen over the years as we, as we move on. But um, let, let me get um, you back on track. Let me get you back on track. Uh, do you have any more specifics to give us in this uh, issue that was of great concern to you and of great importance that you, that the Orthodox Church worships today the way Christians worshiped in the first century. Any more details on that? No, we've said that. Okay. Um, but I do have other reasons and um, other things that uh, drew me into Orthodoxy. Um, uh, one is the sacraments. And, uh, you know, uh, communion, I just want to quote from the scriptures here. Uh, we're from, most Christians are familiar with these verses, but uh, Luke 22, 19 to 20. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. There's another one I want to quote. It's John 6, 53 to 54. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, um, one of the things that um, really struck me about the Orthodox Church was that the communion is considered literal. And um, this is in concurrence with the Church Fathers. I just want to quote... Um, uh, I mentioned before Ignatius, who was the the Bishop of Antioch, who was born in 35 A.D., which is we we'll probably put that at two years after the resurrection, and he, he died in the year 108. So he was a contemporary of the apostles, and here's what he wrote: He said, uh, talking about heretics, he said they heretics even absent themselves from the Eucharist because they will not admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins in which the Father and his goodness afterwards raised up again. The early church understood that when you take communion, you are taking the, the flesh of Jesus Christ the, um, in that uh, blood, uh, in, in that bread, and in that wine. And But in the West, it became watered down to the point that it's symbolic, we'll do it once in a while, um, we do this to remember, uh, they changed the wine to grape juice, they've changed the bread to the to the crackers, it's not consecrated, it's not done the way the original church did it. I realized that I think um, we should be taking Jesus as his word here, and I think the way we take communion is to um, do it the way it was prescribed to the original church. And I think that it's a vital sacrament and not just something that you are to do once in a while. But I was very, very impressed that in Orthodoxy, um, communion is a centerpiece of the, it's the climax of the church service. I wanted very much to 
engage in that because it's described as a gift from God. Communion is actually a gift from God. Now, I know that uh, the, 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 the Western and a Western mindset, we want a rational explanation for everything. So we say, well, how could that be the, the, uh, the uh, blood and body of Jesus Christ? Explain it to me physically. Well, there's a lot of things we accept in, in Christianity that we can't explain um, materially. For example, the incarnation. How did the Holy Spirit make Mary... Um, uh, how was she uh, able to give birth to our Lord Jesus Christ through uh, a, a, a connection to to God? Um, we don't have any explanation for that. We regard we understand that and accept that as a mystery that uh, goes beyond our understanding. It's likewise, the Trinity. Hank Hanegraaff mentioned this that the Trinity, three gods, three persons in one God. Something we don't understand. It's a mystery. But we can accept it, even though we can't come up with a rationalistic, Western-minded explanation for it. It's the same with communion. Now, I know that the Catholics came up with the idea of transubstantiation, which um, we don't do in the Orthodox Church. We simply accept it as a mystery. But, and you correct me if I've said anything in error here, because, I, again, I'm, I'm a newbie to the Orthodox Church. But I was delighted to find that, yes, this is a gift uh, of Jesus Christ giving you his his blood, and his body, and you can partake of it, and you do partake of it in the Orthodox Church every week. Yeah, I know. That's great, and I really appreciate that. Now, uh, and I just, you, know, you might not be able to answer this, but I was on a, I was on a Facebook thread a couple weeks ago, and uh, and I was talking, I made some comment about the importance of the Eucharist, and, uh, and a, uh, a Presbyterian elder, very sharp guy, old philosophy friend, I guess, um, he, uh, he said, he said, why do you care so much about this? And uh, and I and I said, well, you know, when I study the early church, and I'm, and I'm talking about the church right after the Book of Acts and mm-hmm. and continuing on for centuries, I said, when you read all that, it's clear that the entire gatherings were centered around the Eucharist, and this whole thing of the mystical uh, uh, eating of the body and blood of Christ. This is this is central to all that they do and their gatherings and their getting together, and uh, and so that's why I care so much about it because it seems to be what Christians did, what the apostles uh, mm-hmm. were taught to do, yeah. and what we do. Um, it's the way to go. Yeah, and so uh, 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 was there. So was there anything other than? The obvious is what you just said, is that when you read the early church, that's that they put an emphasis on it. Was there anything else about that sacrament that, that you you desired, that uh, you weren't getting it in your Protestant tradition? Um, well, um, I may be wrong about this, um, but, uh, you know, uh, people in the West have uh, been, they read about the Holy Spirit in so people like uh, the first church I went to was Pentecostal church, and there's a lot of uh, desire to uh, experience the Holy Spirit. I believe that uh, Jesus Christ intended for us to experience the Holy Spirit through communion, not through trying to talk in tongues. Um, I believe it was the communion. Um, as he said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. And I believe that when you take communion, you are, I probably shouldn't say that you're receiving the Holy Spirit. That would be, I would be interpreting too much. But I certainly believe that your communion with God is enhanced. I certainly feel I can go that far. 
uh, you're communing with the Holy. You're, you're communing with the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes, exactly. So if you're looking with the Holy Spirit, I would say the way, you, the proper way to do that is do it, do it the way that the apostles taught the first churches to do it. The original uh, followers of Christ take communion. It's a vital sacrament, and not to be um, changed according to the wishes of an elder board or um, a, a, a modern theologian. Um, one other benefit that you've already mentioned, um, but that is uh, when when the whole emphasis of a gathering together of Christians and the climax of the service is the Eucharist, it makes it not so man-centered. It's, it, uh, the gatherings aren't dependent on a personality. You don't have to have a fantastic speaker or a charismatic personality in order for your church to thrive and grow and be healthy because that's not the focus. The focus is on Jesus Christ and the Eucharist. Well, uh, you brought a, a point that I was uh, going to bring up later, and among the things that attracted me to the Orthodox Church, so let me address that right now. Um, one of the things I found in uh, evangelical types of churches was that um, the focus is on the sermon. The sermon is a centerpiece of the service. And, um, you know, I went to a church, the first church I really attended uh, extensively back in the 1980s, I noticed that the pastor would do something. He, at the start of his sermon, he'd quote a verse. And then he'd go on for a sermon for 30, 40 minutes. And somebody noticed, you know, this sermon doesn't have a whole lot to do with that verse. And he'd be kind of going off on his own opinions about things, some of which maybe were right, some of which were wrong, and he'd be getting some amens from the audience. But what I learned in the Orthodox Church is that the service does not center on the sermon. When you center on the sermon, you may end up perhaps seeing more of the pastor's personality and opinions rather than Jesus Christ. In the Orthodox Church, you know, we have, um, you can recite this, the parts of this, the ceremony, but much better than I can, but you always read from the, from the, from the scriptures. You always have hymns. Um, you, um, we recite the creed. We recite the Lord's Prayer. Um, and the climax the centerpiece is the Eucharist. Now, there's a sermon, and I don't know how it is in other Orthodox churches, but the sermon is pretty short. And one thing that I really like about when a, when a pastor, he, he quotes scripture in an Orthodox church, he sings it. Now, this may not be the only reason. Um, I learned this from reading um, um, a book uh, called Welcome to the Orthodox Church by Federico Matthews Green, which it did, apparently one of the reasons for singing the scripture, when the when the priest sings the scripture, it's impossible for him to inflect his voice in order to give emphasis to certain parts of the verse you know that he wants to emphasize. So there's no possibility of distorting it. But that's what you said is is one of the things that also drew me in. It's the authenticity um, of worship. And I should also add uh, to this that um, I know a lot of people they say, well, a liturgical service. It's boring. I mean, it's basically the same thing. It's really not the same thing because you have, depending on the occasion, you may hear different hymns. You do hear, hear a different sermon. And the church's services will vary a little bit depending on the occasion. But the, but the liturgy, we're still using the same liturgy. What I love about that is it guarantees the stability and authenticity of worship. It does not permit an elder board or a pastor to go off in his own direction and change the form of worship. 
and to create a spin-off of a spin-off, and to even forget what the last spin-off was 200 years ago in that denomination. So um, that's uh, that's uh, um, a lot to be said for this type of worship. Yeah, very well said. Um, and I don't know if you have anything else to add to this question. I think you've already addressed it, but just in case you have something, you know, you were a Pentecostal. Uh, so you've 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 been down that road, um, uh, and so is there anything any, anything else you would say to your Pentecostal charismatic friends or just evangelicals in general who they 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 seem to put so much importance on extemporaneous sort of you know uh, the spirit has hit me suddenly and 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 that's that's the moment that moment of emotion or when the spirit suddenly hits you is really where true worship happens. You know, how, how can you enjoy a liturgy that's wrote, you know, scripted when, you know, it's really this more of this, it should be more about this extemporaneous, the spirit just hit me kind of a moment. Uh, no, the, uh, as we were saying before, I believe the way to commune with the Holy Spirit is through the Eucharist. And actually, the reason, I haven't not attended a, a Pentecostal church since the 1980s. This is the first experience I had. Um, but one of the reasons, in fact, the main reason I went into the um, Pentecostal church was I was looking for the Holy Spirit. You know, I wanted to be, I had a lot of needs in my life. I said, well, I was reading the Bible. I said, well, uh, I heard people talk about the Holy Spirit. I said, well, I want to be touched by the Holy Spirit. And their uh, belief, of course, was that they could talk in tongues and the Holy Spirit was gifting them to do that. And I won't pass any judgment here, but I did eventually leave uh, that type of church. But for me, the way to commune with the Holy Spirit is to do it in the way that we're instructed by the apostles. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's 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 great stuff. Um, another is confession of sins. Now, James five sixteen says, "Confess your faults to one another," and uh, you know we should be confessing our sins, right? And uh, I went to evangelical churches, uh, like I say, uh, Protestant churches for over 30 years, never once did anybody ever go to confession, right? And um, now some people do have, you know, people who counsel them and they'll talk about their sins in that way. But, you know, if you're in a going into an evangelical church, you want to confess your sins like uh, James said you do. Well, you know, you could maybe go to your Bible study, you know, and say, well, I'm, I'm, uh, this is an example I gave in my not, it's a fictional example, but a realistic one. You go to your Bible study and you maybe confess that you've been flirting with your secretary at work. Well, what happened, might happen is you, there might be a gossip in this Bible study. It goes to your wife and tells tells her the whole story. And now your wife is she's upset, you're upset, and your confession has done nothing to heal your guilt. Now, the early church recognized that this dilemma existed, and so they developed a system where you would uh, confess your sins before a priest who is sworn to confidentiality. Now, um, I, sh I should mention that, uh, and this is taught in the Orthodox Church, the, the priest is not the one who's forgiving your sins. Only God uh, can forgive sins. But, you know, it's, I know that some people will say, well, I confess my, my sins before God. And we do that in the Orthodox Church. But it's a little different when you confess before a person. You know, I, one thing I know, and I'll speak for myself here, Dean, I'm a lot less likely to confess a sin if I know it. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm a lot less, lot less likely to perpetrate a sin if I know it will later be confessed. It puts a barrier on your your. It's you know uh, keeping uh, it uh, on your your sin. It it, it uh, is a way to 
maintain uh, your your conduct, uh, your your good conduct. And so uh, this is another sacrament, along with um, uh, with the Eucharist, which is maintained in the Orthodox Church. And of course, it's not followed in in Protestant churches because they can't under sola scriptura you can't find a basis for confessing before before a priest, right? They say that's just a tradition, and that's why I want to. Um, Without segueing away from confession, I just want to mention something about tradition here. Um, Jesus said, uh, this is Mark 7, 8, For laying aside the commandment of men, ye hold the traditions of men. So people will say, well, conf confessing before a priest, that's just a tradition, so we're not going to do that. And the distinction that I drew in this blog post and I'll, that I'll draw here now, Jesus, in context, was condemning trad the traditions of the Pharisees, the oral law that be later began the Talmud. He didn't mean... All traditions of Christianity itself are to be to be thrown away. Um, when Martin Luther said sola scriptura, he uh, took away 1,500 years of uh, church history and all the wisdom that went with the early church. Um, and uh, just to quote a, a, a scripture in support of tradition, um, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Um, so, uh, confession is one of, for me, I, I need to go to, I wept after I went to confession, you know, it was a, it was a, uh, very deep and meaningful experience. You don't get that, um, in the, uh, in the West, in, in the, in the Protestant evangelical churches. Um, I believe it's vital sacrament. Uh, a lot of people wouldn't agree with what I said about how you need to confess before people, but for me. Uh, that's a sacrament that I want. Well, let me tell you, when that priest lays his uh, stole over your head and pronounces forgiveness and absolution over you, and he is in the line of the apostles all, all the way back to Jesus, and Jesus told his apostles that they had the authority to forgive sins, when that happens to you, it's a very powerful experience. Yeah, and that's uh, one of uh, many reasons. Uh, you'll, you'll find that I'll, I'll be enumerating uh, a few here. Um Another is that, uh, well, Brother Nathaniel picked up on this. Um, he talked about, this is one of the things that drew him to um, the Orthodox Church was, he said, the preaching's quiet. It's not this Bible banging, you know, you know the kind of preaching I'm talking about. Sure. Um, that's uh, in your face uh, type of preaching. It's, it's a quiet, uh, respectful uh, type of preaching. And that's where I was about to bring in the fact that the sermon is not the focus of the service. Jesus is the focus of the service. The sermon is percentage wise compared to the Western churches is um, a very small part of it. Um, I'll, I'll go on to my next point, but I'll, I'll throw that back to you first. Oh no, we've already discussed that. So go on to your next one. Okay. Next. Uh, even before I discovered orthodoxy, I got very interested in the Septuagint. Um, now, uh, I, you know, when I was in church, uh, we'd be reading the Bible and the apostles or Jesus would refer to a prophecy made in the Old Testament. And when you turn to that passage in the Old Testament, you'd find that the wording was different. And so I said, how come the apostles say one thing, and then when you turn back to it, are they just paraphrasing what's going on? And it turns out they were using the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, whereas our modern Bibles are using the Masoretic. Now, just to clarify, the Masoretic was compiled a thousand years after, about a thousand years after after Christ, by rabbinic scholars. Um, 
which is not to badmouth it, but I'm just saying it, it, it was put together a thousand years later. The uh, Septuagint, on the other hand, is was completed, I believe it was 132 uh, BC, and it was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That is what Jesus and the apostles quoted. I've always been fascinated by the fact that this Bible, this Old Testament seems to be suppressed. And I went on Amazon years ago, and there were like a couple different versions you, you could buy, but it was like it was like a rare book. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, this is what Jesus and the apostles quoted. Why is it so rare? Then I went to the, the Orthodox Church, and I found the Orthodox Church uses Septuagint. They use the same uh, Old Testament that is, was used by Jesus and the apostles. And my view is, if it's good enough for Jesus and the apostles, then it is good enough for me. Very good, yeah. Um, I, if I recall, I might, might be wrong about this, but I think one of the many verses that are, is quoted in the New Testament uh, that doesn't make sense in the old is uh, is when Judas uh, pay, uh, gets 30 uh, pieces of silver, and I think they say this is the fulfill the prophecy in Jeremiah, and then you look in your little cross-reference and it gives you this Jeremiah verse and then you go read the book and read the verse in Jeremiah and it doesn't say anything about 30 pieces of silver and you're like, okay, what's going on here? Right. Um, I, I'm not sure if that is solved by the Septuagint, but there's a lot of quotations in the New Testament that are exactly what you're saying. They don't, they don't match up at all to the Old Testaments that most of us are carrying around. What, you know, I have a lot of these epiphany moments, moments in uh, being in the Orthodox Church where I say, well, you guys are doing it right. Now, this is another thing you're doing right, you know? And, um, okay, now this next one is probably going to be the most controversial part of uh, tonight's broadcast. But in the Orthodox Church, they follow what Jesus referred to as the, the narrow gate that few would find. And um, what the apostle called the way, Acts 9-2. There's, there's actually a lifestyle that accompanies being Orthodox and involves the pursuit of godliness. And um, Brother Nathaniel pointed out that a number of concepts had come into Western theology that created some dangers. And I mentioned these in, in the post. There's, there's three of them. Uh, we, first, we have uh, Martin Luther's um, We're Saved by Faith Alone, right? And um, we're going to get more into that in a moment. Um, and yes, there are many scriptures that support that, that position. Um, and uh, but another was Calvin. He said that uh, you know our destiny is predestined. He put emphasis on predestination. And now we often hear "once saved, always saved." That's a phrase we hear pretty often in the, in the West these days. Now, I want to really stress because people don't need to send me Bible verses that there are Bible verses to support any of those positions. Uh, however, the danger is if you overfocus on any one of them, you can say. Well, I'm saved by faith alone, so how I behave really doesn't matter. I have faith in Jesus, so it doesn't really matter what I, what I do. Or I'm predestined. My faith is predestined by God anyway, so what difference does it make how I act? I'm going to end up in heaven or hell anyway. Um, and if you say once saved, always saved, that could create for some people. I'm not, certainly not all people. Um, once saved, always saved. You say, well, uh, I'm saved, so from now on it really doesn't matter how I live. I want to stress strongly here, because I know that what I'm saying offends some people, that there are many, many innumerable godly Christians um, in the in the uh, non-Orthodox churches who do not take the type of lazy spiritual attitude I just mentioned. But it becomes a temptation in your mind when you think I'm faith alone, I'm predestined, 
once saved, always saved. It creates that. It's, it's very easy to fall into, into temptation. And I think the brother Nathaniel is right that these things have are. Well, I'll say it. I just isn't what he said, but um, I think that they have contributed not only to the moral decline of the West, but to moral decline within the churches themselves. When we think that our behavior is not essential to our life and role as Christians. Amen. Yeah, I, I have a, a college roommate, best friend, who uh, we went to a Presbyterian college, good good Bible Christian college. Um, um, but he is now a, a Orthodox priest in the Antiochian Church. He's in St. Louis. But his passion that got him to the Orthodox Church was this very issue, was that he didn't see, you know, there might be lip service towards living a holy life uh, in the evangelical churches, but he just didn't see anybody really really working hard at it. And, and what he what he saw was a lot of emphasis on the passages in Romans and Galatians talking about it's all grace, it's all grace, it's all grace. But he didn't really see a, a strong emphasis on becoming Christ-like. Um, and uh, and so that that quest led it, led him to reading some of the uh, authors like Brother Lawrence and folks like that who kind of talk about living a walking with Jesus moment by moment. And that got him back into the desert fathers, uh, of the fourth and fifth century. Uh, and, uh, as he continued down that path, eventually it caused him to be Orthodox because ortho the Orthodox church does put a very strong emphasis on becoming Christ-like, uh, on, on holiness of life of becoming, uh, one with God himself in, in theosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I'm going to do a, a slight comedy diversion here for a moment. I, I don't want to date you. Uh, I'll date myself. Did you ever watch the old show called Dobie Gillis? Uh, you have dated me, and I've got a longer beard than you do. Oh. <laughs> okay. Well, Dobie Gillis was a show that was on the air, I think it was from 1959 to 63, and um, a little bit of an avant-garde comedy. And... Um, so, so only the old timers are going to remember this, but Dobie Gillis was an American teenager and a buddy who was a, a beatnik um, named Maynard G. Krebs. And uh, Maynard G. Krebs was played by Bob Denver, who's better known as Gilligan of Gilligan's Island. But he was playing a beatnik. And one of the classic um, uh, standard uh, comedy bits on this show was that Maynard hated to work. And so if you mention, you can, you go on YouTube, look for Maynard G. Krebs, Adobe Gillis, and the word work, and you'll get clips from this. But uh, when, when uh, Maynard the Hippie, somebody said the word work, he <laughs> work. And uh, I just had this kind of epiphany just yesterday that around um, some Western Christians, if you mention works, it's, they have a Maynard G. Krebs uh, <laughs> reaction to that. Um, and so uh, I've been kind of compiling um, some verses and... Uh, you know, uh, again, we, we, we've heard this emphasis on saved by faith alone, and there's many verses that can be quoted in support of that. And then a classic one, of course, is Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works to, so that no one may boast. Okay. But the thing is, we, we read the whole Bible, right? And here's a, a quotation. You see then that man... Sorry, you see then that a man is justified by works, not by faith only. And that is James 2.24. Now, just to give people the context, I don't want anybody to think I'm taking this out of context. I'll quote the full passage, <clears throat> James 2, 
14 to 26. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But some will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and was accounted to him for righteousness. He is called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Um, I'm quoting this just that's, that's the Bible. It's not me. Oh, I thought you were quoting the Pope. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> Martin Luther, as you pointed out, tried to exclude James from the Bible. And actually, in the first Lutheran Bibles, James was a supplementary book. He didn't want it in there. But just to show people that it's not just James, but also Paul that says this, um, or, or is in parallel with this. This is in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Now, I know some people say he's talking about non-Christians there, or, you know, it's just, we're just going to get rewards when we go to judgment. But um, here's another one. This is Romans 2, 5 to 10. Uh, again, speaking to Christians, uh, Paul speaking. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are tracing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. And again, quoting Paul, Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Um, Dean, that doesn't sound like once saved, always saved. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or Galatians 6, 9, And let us not weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And to quote the Lord, Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Matthew uh, 5, 48, be therefore perfect, even as your Father which in heaven is perfect. In Revelation 3, 5, this is the last one I'll quote. Uh, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And there are many other scriptures like that. So uh, I'm not quoting these to make a case for works versus uh, over faith. But in the Orthodox Church, we understand that our works and our faith are integrated. There's, there's, a, there's a synergy between them. Would that be uh, correct to say? Yeah, I think that's a very good way to say it. And I think uh, somehow what's happened in the in in 21st and 20th century Christianity is that uh, whatever uh, Luther and Calvin were trying to do with the whole concept of grace, it got out of whack. 
mm-hmm. and and so the whole concept of of uh, righteousness, holy living, kind of got mm-hmm. lost to the wayside uh, uh, in 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 lieu of grace, 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 grace. Well, we, we do believe in God's grace, uh, and it's very much it works together in a synergistic way, like you said. But uh, it that mystery needs to be upheld. And you have to have the historic church and the strength and the foundation of the church to keep that balance going in a healthy way. Uh, when you uh, remove yourself from the foundation of the apostles and prophets, like uh, first Catholicism and, and now Protestantism has done, then what happens to you is what it says in Ephesians, is that you get tossed to and fro by the winds and waves, by all sorts of strange teachings, by deceitful men. Uh, and so... Uh, 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 yeah, it's gotten out of whack. Now, let me just tell you something real quick. Uh, it took me a long time to figure this out, uh, uh, being a son of a Calvinist pastor. But uh, for, for once saved, always saved. But another word for that is uh, e- eternal security. Uh, the uh, that, that's, uh, that doesn't quite work so well, um, and here's why. Because uh, a lot of times people will say, well, what about the person who's living like the devil and doing whatever they want and and he thinks he's saved and he's going to heaven he prayed the prayer and and the response from the protestant preacher will be well he was never actually saved he just thought in the first place i've heard that many times yeah he thought he was he he was deceived and so then then the the uh, sincere parishioner says well uh how do i know that i'm not deceived I, i you know i don't i want to go to heaven pastor you know, so I want to make sure I'm not deceived like this other guy that you said who was living like the devil and wasn't deceived. And the Protestant pastor will say, well, if you if you uh, are walking with Christ and living a righteous life, then you'll have the assurance of salvation. That is, that's the exact words that they will use. That's the same thing as works righteousness. It's just semantics. Uh, exactly. Um, a couple of things I, I wanted to add to this is that... Um, um, people often say that the Orthodox just think they're going to heaven because of works, and we we believe in Jesus, and we believe that that uh, salvation is a gift from Jesus Christ, every bit as much as the Western churches do. But we also understand that our lifestyle needs to be integrated with our faith. It's not, you know, some people think that somehow it's a matter of vanity and conceit that, that the Orthodox think that, uh, well, I'm, I'm so great in my works that I'm, I'm going to heaven. Well, you know, if you, you're vain and, and conceited, that that in itself is sin. So obviously you would not be part of your, your good works to be that way. And certainly we don't. Uh, we don't teach the act, the actual uh, em- the actual emphasis in the life of the church on a very regular basis is to hear the prayer lord have mercy on me a sinner and right. during lent on a regular basis you hear the prayer lord help me not to judge my brother uh but have mercy on right. me um and in a real practical actual sense uh, there's much more humility and crying out for the mercy of god uh in my Orthodox experience than there ever was in my evangelical experience. Right, and um, of course that prayer for the mercy of God is from the uh, the tax collector in the temple who who uh, pounded his chest and had said to the Lord, "Have mercy on me, a sinner." Um, and Jesus said he was the one who, who went away justified, um, not the man who was proud of his own own works. So that is fully recognized in Orthodoxy. I also want to say something else about this that. Um, in no way am I implying that, uh, again, that there aren't uh, countless 
uh, Western Christians who lead good and, and godly lives. And I also think it's important that to remember uh, how Jesus said not to judge others. Uh, we should never compare one man's works to another's. Uh, and I say that because people are in all kinds of different... There's people with Alzheimer's. There's people who are 95. There's people who are disabled. There are people who are suffering from PDS, PTSD in combat. There are, are people who um, are artistic. artistic. Um, everybody has a, a, a life story of their own. And some people, you know, Jesus said that to whom much is given, much is expected. To whom little is given, little is expected. And so we, we can't pass judgment on other people if we fail, well, they're ungodly and start to, you know, there's a very wise Chinese path. My wife is Chinese, and there's a Chinese pastor she likes who talks about the fact, don't busy yourself wondering whether so-and-so is going to heaven. Concern yourself with your own salvation. So um, that's another point I want to make, is that we are all individuals. God uh, alone amongst um, beings knows um, what's in a man's heart, and uh, judgment and uh, a man's ultimate destiny lie in the hand of God and not uh, people to, to pass judgment upon him. Very good. Uh, let me take a second here. Uh, there's some people who uh, may have been tracking with us all through all through this uh, podcast uh, and who are very interested and intrigued by your journey, uh, uh, but they may be uh, asking the question that, in my experience, most Protestants ask uh, quickly uh, when, when dealing with the Eastern Orthodox Church, and mm. the two issues are icons and uh, the veneration of Mary. Um, and those two things uh, almost uh, always are the two biggest issues that they have to overcome. So let me just take a minute and, and address both of those uh, to help people. First of all, icons. Okay, icons are pictures of Jesus Christ and pictures of saints. And uh, so first people say, well, I thought the Old Testament, you know, and the Ten Commandments, you know, forbids making images. Well, first of all, <clears throat> uh, in, uh, the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments don't forbid making images because there was images in the tabernacle. There were images of angels over top of the Ark of the Covenant. The there were, there were images of angels all throughout the the uh, blankets, you know, around the tabernacle and the temple. There's images of bulls, you know, underneath the laver. There's just there's just lots of images. So images aren't forbidden. Uh, yes, the second commandment says you're not to make an image uh, of me and worship it. Now, the Orthodox uh, had a giant worldwide council in the uh, 7th, 8th century uh, on this issue because... Uh, uh, really, the, the, because of the influence of Islam, uh, there was iconoclasm, which was the smashing of icons. Uh, but what the church has always historically taught is that in the incarnation, Jesus Christ, uh, in his good pleasure, God himself decided to make himself an image. He became yes. an image, the image of a man the image of the man, Jesus Christ. He had a face. He had an image. He had a likeness. And since Jesus Christ became a man, we are allowed to make icons and images of him, not to worship the piece of wood or the photograph that it's on, but it's a window to heaven. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a help or an aid to us to worship him where, wherever he is right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Uh, so we worship Jesus Christ, who is an image, 
he made himself an image and and because of that uh images of all kinds now are 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 blessed and glorified now now uh, and and I'll be honest with you as a Protestant son of a Protestant minister I was able to handle a picture of Jesus uh even when I saw people you know cross themselves and bow you know kind of bow toward it and kiss it I'm like I get it okay it's a it's a it's a window to heaven it's an image of Jesus they're worshiping Jesus who's actually in heaven and I was okay with that the one that really tripped me up that I just want to mention real quick cuz I think I can help people on it the one that really tripped me up was when they go to an icon of Saint Nicholas or an icon of John the Baptist or an icon of some uh, saint in the last century and they do the same thing to him and I'm like hold on isn't that worshiping someone who's not God <laughs> um, and and here's the answer because that's a very good question um, the answer to that is we are not worshiping that person we are venerating them we are paying respects to them uh, orthodoxy is a oriental culture it's an Eastern and Asian culture any of you who've been to Korea or Japan or China, Jim, I imagine James, I imagine you've gone to China, um, but uh, Taiwan. Uh, okay, Taiwan. Uh, uh, when when people greet the, each other there, they bow down to each other. Okay, uh, that's what traditional cultures do. They bow to each other, uh, and so when we go to the icon of saint nicholas and we bow to that icon and kiss it we're not worshiping him we are paying him respect mm -hmm. it's like shaking his hand okay uh one more analogy that will really help people on this is let me ask you this when a man decides he wants to propose to a girl and ask her to marry him and he gets down on one knee and he hands her a ring and he proposes to her is he worshiping her is that idolatry and to a man, people will say, of course not. What is it? That person is paying respects. Right. Um, so <clears throat> that's one thing that people struggle with. I think that explanation will help most people. The second thing is Mary. This one's a little more difficult. Um, we venerate... we to, before going to Mary, just to Go ahead. Uh, uh, feedback on icons. Um, as, as far as uh, you're absolutely right, and this is what I've understood also in orthodoxy, is that Jesus became an icon. He became a visible man. And at that point, you are allowed to worship. They, they worshipped him uh, when he was here in the flesh. And um, so there's nothing wrong. If, if there's anything wrong with the Jesus movie, making a picture of Jesus. Does that mean we're worshiping him? He was, so, so obviously not. So there's no problem with it. Another thing I want to mention about icons, I've got one on my wall here. It serves as a reminder, you know, people, a lot of people in the original church were illiterate. The icons helped to re, to tell people the story of Christ in pictures. And um, one thing that's mentioned to me, and I find this true, if you have a picture of Jesus on your wall, an icon on your wall, you're, you're less likely to do something sinful when you look up and see the image of Jesus there as a reminder. Uh, also, in terms of um, is this worship, you know, there are a lot of things we treat with respect. How about the American flag? If people trample on the American flag, a lot of people are offended by it. Doesn't mean that they worship the American flag, but they think it should be treated with with dignity. And um, uh, likewise, uh, you might remember that uh, there was Sinead O'Connor took a picture of the Pope and ripped it up. A lot of people were angry about that. Well, she wasn't killing the Pope, but people took it as a symbol. You treat a symbol with with some respect. And so there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that uh, during this, I read a story, I, I, it's probably uh, too faint in my memory, but I believe that there was a monk 
who uh, was approached by an emperor, um, uh, was criticizing him for the, for icons, and so the monk took a, a, a coin with the emperor's picture on it and put it on the ground and uh, trampled it with his foot. And um, I think the emperor got the message that that was a message of disrespect. Nothing, nothing wrong with showing respect. Um, to, to something uh, that symbolizes something. So just to, to further elaborate on what you're saying. Sure. Uh, and so the question, the, the issue of venerating Mary is, is, is more difficult. I'll, I'll be honest, it's a, it's a, it's a little, uh, little, little tougher to navigate. It's an acquired taste. It takes a little bit of time. Uh, but just uh, to share a couple things from my experience, uh, when I first started going to an Orthodox church, you know, I would, I would be in the service and, you know, you know, Two or three times in the service, I'd hear something about, you know, honoring Mary, and I'd sort of cringe, you know, you know, um, and uh, but about uh, a couple months in, a few months in, uh, I I suddenly had an epiphany, and that is, if you go to an Orthodox church, you're going to hear glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, and you're going to hear the glorifying and the worshiping, not just the venerating, but the glorifying and worshiping of the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you're going to hear that hundreds of times, literally hundreds of times in a service. And then two or three, four times, you're like, like a MC at a banquet who acknowledges his wife to his right, <laughs> you're going to hear three or four times, once once at the beginning, once at the end, maybe maybe once or twice in the middle, you're going to hear a uh, an appreciation of Christ's mother who we call the Theotokos, and it is a veneration and it is respect, and by clear teaching of the church, it is not a worshiping or a glorifying, it is a, uh, it is a uh, veneration. We, we sometimes use the word magnify uh, to distinguish it from glorify. So we do do that, but when you start to think about the context of the actual services, we worship and glorify the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, so come to a few services and, and try that out and, and, and you'll get a sense of that. Well, having been to uh, Orthodox services for a steady year now, I can, I can validate uh, that that is true, that uh, Mary is venerated, but she is not worshiped. And I think that there may be some confusion sometimes with past periods in history where um, there was a tendency among some people, perhaps uh, even within Catholicism, uh, and I'm not an expert on Catholicism for sure, um, but uh, uh, let's make it very clear that uh, Mary is not being treated as a god, that uh, we understand the Trinity as representing God, and she is not uh, revered as a god in herself, and I think some people have that misunderstanding. Yes, uh, we could we could talk more about that, but I'll I'll kind of leave it be for now. But um, mm-hmm. did you have anything else on your list? Um, yes, I did, uh, and it's uh, pretty much the last thing, which is that um, we're talking about things that drew me to the Orthodox Church. Another, um, this is probably the third time we used it. Epiphany that I had was that the most persecuted church in history has been the Orthodox. You know, the Bolsheviks, um, when they took over the church in Russia, they murdered uh, 300,000 priests and destroyed 60,000 churches. 
And that's according to the records released uh, after Glasnost. You know, KTB used to be called a checkup. And tens of millions of Christians killed. And tens of millions of Christians. And this is the worst slot of Christians in history. And, you know, in the West we mention it, but rarely is it mentioned that those were Orthodox Christians. And one of the, the epiphanies I had is that the devil knows who his worst enemy is. And if you look at the... Um, the record of genocides of Christians. You look at the Ukrainian genocide, Orthodox Christians, six million dead. If you look at the Armenian genocide, I know they were what we call Oriental Orthodox, but Orthodox nonetheless. And then there was uh, contemporary to Lenin and Trotsky wiping out all those priests, 1919 to 1922, an episode that many people have forgotten was the Greek genocide, when all the Christians were expelled from Turkey and hundreds of thousands of People were slaughtered in the aftermath of World War One, and that's one of the things that, of course, caused the mass immigration of the Greek Orthodox Church or many Greek Orthodox into America at that time. So it's the worst persecuted church, and um, I've always felt that, uh, if, if for people who know my writings, that there's a spiritual basis for what happens in history. Again, I think that the devil, in his own way, was testifying to the authenticity of the church. This is not to downplay the or, the persecution of other non-Orthodox Christians. There's been look at the way the the uh, the Catholics and the and the Protestants slaughtered each other uh, for years in the West. There's been much persecution of, of non-Orthodox, but the worst slaughters, the real genocides, were of the Orthodox Christians. And I think that that is something to bear in mind when you're looking, uh, because I think that. Um, Whereas uh, with the Catholic Church, he attempted to infiltrate it. I think Satan, in the case of the uh, Orthodox Church, he attempted to completely exterminate it. And um, that's just another factor that made me think. And um, when, I, when I looked at the context of history as to what is the true church, I think that Satan knew. Uh, and what he wanted to put down and destroy was the, was the above all, was the Orthodox very good, which leads me to a question which will kind of get us close to winding down, but um, uh, this is a question I have for you. Um, okay, you're a, you're a great writer. Uh, you're an author. You, you talk about big picture stuff. You're into geopolitics. You, you deal with long threads of, of uh, uh, movements and schools of thought and, and that sort of thing, and, and uh, uh forces of good and evil in history. And now you've become an Orthodox Christian. Now, how uh, how does this affect... Um, is this just James Perloff now goes to a different type of church where they kind of worship God differently, and, and so he, he sort of feels good about his personal life that way, and it doesn't really have anything to do with the rest of your big-picture thinking? Or how does the Orthodox Church and this now thing that you've become a part of, how does that relate to your larger view of of history, geopolitics and politics and the and, and the movement of history? Well it's both personal um, and uh, broad. It's personal and for the reasons I gave, the uh, ability not to participate in what I consider to be the most authentic form of worship in my daily life. Um, in a, in a broader sense, it's given me a greater understanding of geopolitics. Uh, I believe that one reason why you hear these uh, constant attacks on Russia um, and Assad is that uh, Russia has had an orthodox revival. They've had uh, over 25,000 new churches opened in Russia. And whether you believe them or not, uh, if uh, Putin is pretending to be orthodox, he's putting on a pretty good act. 
and he's condemned the moral decline of the West. He talks sense on foreign policy, and I think that a lot of this hostility is a resurrected, um, if I can use that word for the devil, of animosity towards orthodoxy in Russia, which the they weren't counting on. They thought they'd scrubbed it out, and uh, it's re-blossomed. Re and of course, um, you, you really want to call this to my attention. We were talking politics at one time. One reason why Putin went in there, he knew that if the U.S.-backed ISIS and Al-Qaeda and White Helmet forces took power there and threw out Assad, he's been protecting the Orthodox Church in Syria, which has been there since the days of the Apostles. According to the Bible, in the book of Acts, the Apostles were first called Christians in Syria. And so they have a long history there. I have people in my church from Syria, and they know what the deal is. They know what the rights and wrongs are out there. And um, so I think that in, uh, it broadened my geopolitical view and gave me further spiritual understanding, not only of history, what's going on in the world today. And I think that, um, you know, I've been part of what we broadly call alt-media or the truth movement. And we're trying to fight this new world order and uh, the powers that be, so to speak. We know that the increasingly we see that they're Luciferian in their character. It's becoming more and more apparent. Just there introduce a Luciferian agenda to the schools, the transgenderism, the homosexual marriage, satanic worship, child sacrifice, the whole things that were brought up by Pizzagate, etc. As people in the alt media start to see that it's Luciferian, they say, well, if there's a Lucifer, there must be a God. And it would be nice, it would be nice, if not essential, to direct them towards the true God, uh, which is Jesus Christ in the Trinity, which they can best find in the authentic church, which still worships as it did uh, two millennia ago, going back to the days of Christ. So I see this as personal, and I also see it as part of um, something that I want to be part of spreading through uh, internet and social media, and it, as I've said, uh, contributes to my understanding of geopolitics as being the human representation of the spiritual warfare, which the Bible speaks of. Amen. Man, that's a great answer. Let me uh, let me pick piggyback on that with a couple of points. Uh, one is, um, and uh, both of us are, I guess, uh, you know, just to say it like it is, we're both in the conspiracy world, and and we we're we're looking at a lot of things that you know, it's kind of corruption theory is what I like to call it, but it's truth. Um, but the reality is, if you roll up your sleeves and you get into all that mess, now you find yourself wrestling in the mud. And before you know it, um, you just, uh, all, all you're thinking about, all you're reading about, all you're obsessing about is just evil stuff all the time. Well, one of the great blessings of the Orthodox Church is that the Church gives us a structure uh, of where we uh, regularly meditate on righteousness. We regularly mm -hmm. meditate on truth, beauty, and glory, all coming together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we come together regularly for his Eucharist on Sundays. We, we have 12 major feasts every year celebrating the life of Jesus Christ and his major events, his baptism, his resurrection, uh, the day of Pentecost, uh, Jesus's first time he was brought into the temple, et cetera, et cetera, the transfiguration. We have these feasts and where we come together and we meditate on and we focus on the good, the positive. Because, you know, when, you, when you've rolled up your sleeves and you're talking every day about pedophiles and ritual sacrifice and Satanists and that kind of stuff, it gets kind of dark. So on a real practical level, that's a wonderful thing that uh, the Orthodox Church does for us. But it's even a little better than that in that um, uh, one of the reasons I became Orthodox is because in the 
early 90s. Uh, as the more I learned and the more I saw the corruption in the United States government, that sort of thing, I had to give up. I was sort of like the head of the Christian coalition in my area, and I was kind of a big Christian. I was in there too. Okay. <laughs> I was a big Christian uh, America guy. Yeah. You know, Christian America, America is a Christian country. And uh, the more I learned, uh, both in terms of history, uh, I hadn't read your, uh, your, your thing on Lexington Green yet, but, but uh, that kind of thing. Um, the more I read history, and, but also the current stuff and the stuff that the evil empire was doing, I had to give up my Christian empire kind of belief. And that left me uh, naked. That left me uh, stranded, void, in in terms of on this physical earth. You know, that now the whole world is kind of corrupt. Even America, who's supposed to be the the saintly thing in the world that goes out and keeps everybody good, if that's the evil empire, what do I got left? I'm just I'm 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 a lonely person uh, by myself in an evil world. Well, so one of the reasons I became Orthodox is because when I find out find out there was an institution, an actual physical institution with leaders and buildings and tradition and you know longstanding legacy and all these kind of things that goes back starts with Jesus. He lays his hands on the apostles. They lay the hands on their successors, and it continues on in history and is here today. And Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, when I learned about that, I wanted that because I was naked in terms of a physical thing on earth that I could be a part of, something larger. So, uh, you know, the evangelical churches sort of kind of stay away from that. They don't like to talk about institutional church. They don't like to talk about there's a whole, we can get into philosophical stuff. There's sort of a Gnosticism thing that's sort of crept into evangelical Christianity. The Catholics still have the whole sense of an institutional church, but they got their other issues. But Orthodoxy, Orthodox Church, the ancient, true, historic church continues to have, it, 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 it gives us something here on this earth that we can be a part of. Now, you know, it's, it's suffering, it's persecuted, you know, it's not, it's not nirvana yet. I mean, we've got, uh, we're, we're in this world right now, but, but we have something that's flesh and blood, that's tangible, that's real, that we can be a part of. Uh, I'll close with a verse and I'll let you sh- share anything you want to share. But, uh, my favorite verse for, uh, years before I became Orthodox, but for many years of my life was uh, Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do uh, immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now, that's kind of a benedictory prayer kind of a thing. But you notice that second half of the verse, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. The church is listed before Jesus Christ in terms of, you know, this final benedictory kind of, you know, verse that's going to talk about how we're going to give glory to God. We give glory to God in the church. And in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. So what we're talking about here is just not just a little thing. <laughs> not just a little, okay, well, you know, okay, you got your little church thing going on here. That's cool. No, this is, this is everything. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. And um, just to, uh, to uh, backtrack to what you were saying, um, I think that uh, Christians who, um, even with the orthodoxy, if they have no knowledge of what's going on in the world 
geopolitically around them that they are really missing missing something and they can fall into trouble that way. Uh, you know, I, I think um, back to the Russian Orthodox Church and, um, you know, if um, this is just my imagination, but if somebody said to a, a uh, Orthodox priest uh, back in 1916, uh, you know, beware the Bolsheviks, maybe he would have said, well, that's just politics. We're, you know, we're, we're not concerned with that in the church. But in fact, it was politics were very relevant to the church and uh, attempted to destroy them. So I think it behooves Christians everywhere to be informed about geopolitical issues. On the other hand, if you're an alt-media person, you're on a Twitter and so forth, but you have no spiritual life, it's exactly as you said. All you're seeing, we're mostly losing this battle right now. We know that Satan doesn't win in the end. Jesus Christ came down and defeated death on the cross because if he defeated Satan as God alone, Satan could have said, well, you know, you, you, you overwhelm me with your power. But he came down as a man and he won that victory for us and freed us from the um, perdition that sin ultimately would lead to uh, without Jesus Christ. Um, the church gives people, as you're saying, instead of focusing on the negative all that time, you have that you have that Eucharist, you have that spirituality, and you have that hope, and you have that realization that we do win in the end. Even if we suffer, as we all do at, at, at various times in our lives, even if we do suffer, we know we have victory in the end. So we have that joy. So I think that uh, for a person living in the real world today, I think they need both. I think they need... Uh, a, a real picture of the world that not that's not based on uh, a bought and paid for or mass media in Hollywood, um, and they also need that spiritual life in the church. I think they need both. Um, you know, uh, there was a time um, in the days of Constantine and thereafter when the church had a protector. Um, it had an emperor, and you know they went together. Church and state went together, and actually. Frankly, I don't believe in the concept of separation of church. Instead, I believe that um, it, you can have a bad monarch and you can have uh, things go wrong in a church. But I believe that, uh, you know, uh, you had in, in, in Constantinople, you had the emperors as guardians of the faith. In, in Europe, the uh, European kings called themselves uh, guardians of the faith. Right on their coinage, it would be there. That was the intent of, of the state. Um, we've, we've lost that. But so I think today, when we have in America, we have nothing but the Constitution, which is protecting the church. Um, and that is as great as the Constitution is, and the Bill of Rights is in some, is we see it continually being eroded. We see uh, rights, freedom of speech constantly being eroded, and freedom of religion uh, not far behind. Um, so I think for some of us in alt media, and I, I count you as a person as alt media as long as as, as far as well as being a brother uh, uh, in, in the Orthodox faith, a brother in Christ. Uh, I think we in the media are sort of the ideological Constantines of today, and that we are trying to ward off the evil that would come after us, would come after the church. We don't have the sword of Constantine or those armies that once existed. Uh, they were protectors of the church. They were. They were protectors of the church. But I think today, one of the roles we can fulfill is being a, as I said, an ideological Constantine, one who is uh, guarding against, to the best of our abilities, with God's help, the uh, satanic forces that would come against the church. Well, I think that's, that's a great. 
I think that's a great place to close. Um, thank you so much for uh, this interview. It is great to hear your story. Uh, uh, James Perloff uh, baptized and chrismated into the Orthodox Church on November 18th, November 18th 2017. A great day. And Ten days ago we recorded this. Yeah. Ten days ago. And uh, so God is good. Uh, thank you for sharing your story. Uh, hope for, hopefully there will be many more like this to come. Thank you, uh, Dean. Uh, you were actually instrumental in bringing me to the Orthodox faith. Uh, it was your, your post, which I referenced in my, my own blog post, uh, Dean's 21 Reasons to Become an Orthodox Christian, had a big impact. And you and I had many uh, a number of private discussions about Orthodox and asked you a lot of questions, which you were expertly answering for me. So that was uh, a big help to me, a big plus to me. And I hope this interview tonight might be a help to somebody else who's troubled by some things maybe they're seeing in their church and are looking for a godly, authentic alternative. All right. That's Global Storyline. We'll see you next time, Jim. Okay. Thanks, Dean.